This is Moravian Mornings, a podcast discussing the history surrounding the Moravians who settled in Wachovia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Moravian Mornings. This is part two of our discussion with Stuart Marshall on pottery. So let's get started. Do you care to talk a little bit more about what types of materials they used? The most important material a, a good potter needs is a good source of clay. And that's the first thing that Gottfried Alst wanted to find when he came down here to Bethabara in 1755. That was the first thing he did after getting settled in just a little bit. Uh, I think the very next day, he went to dig for clay. And as you all know, Bethabara, we have the Monarchus Creek that runs pretty much through those bottomland fields there, um, which were not necessarily fields at the time, but he, he knew to look along the creek beds for a good source of clay and very quickly found um, a good source of clay that would work well for him that was, again, in the Piedmont, we have a lot of red, red clays is what we call it, you know, red to sort of orange in color. And this is used for what's sometimes called redware pottery, but is more, I guess, more accurately described as earthenware, um, which is fired at a pretty low temperature, actually. If you think of terracotta, that is a form of earthenware. So it actually, it does not change color that much when you fire it. Um, because you're not not firing at a really high temperature. And for the Moravians' purposes, that, that really made sense for making a lot of sort of cheaper, um, mass-produced, I guess, pieces, because they had abundant sources of earthenware clay. Now, I've been through Bethabara, and I've walked along the creek, and I have had no luck in finding any any good clay, really. We think either they used it all, or the creek has changed quite a bit just due to natural erosion and probably some dredging or rerouting of some of the creeks probably in the early 20th century. It's interesting though, because again, everybody, everybody thinks the Moravians wrote everything down, right? Which they did describe a lot of things in detail, but we actually don't know exactly how they were processing the clay. So we know they weren't exactly digging it straight out of the ground and then putting it right on the wheel and turning with it. Um, They refer to what's called washing the clay, which we think is just a basic sifting process of getting out some of the rocks and sticks and larger grit. But we also know from archaeology, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, we know from that record that they left rocks as big as a quarter inch in the clay body that they were using. They obviously didn't process it too much, at least for the general earthenware stuff. Later, they might have made a more refined clay to use for some of the thinner pieces. But I've, I've dug a lot of local clay and had a lot of trouble using it. And uh, most potters today, of course, get their clay from a distributor. But if you want to just go out in your backyard and dig some clay, it's not quite that easy. Um, something I found that I wanted to keep a very basic sort of sifting process and regretted that almost immediately because when I went to throw with it, it was super gritty. It felt like throwing sandpaper. And for those of you that have seen me thrown before or seen any potter work on the wheel, one of the first steps after actually throwing the clay down on the wheel, you're centering that clay. And sometimes, especially if you're making a larger jug or a pot, it's a heavy piece of clay and you're really pushing against it. I mean, you're really trying to get it centered on the wheel perfectly. So you're pushing pretty hard and with a very gritty clay, um, I scraped up some of my hands working with some of that. So I don't recommend that at all. And in general, too, you might find what what you think will be a good clay, but you really don't know until you try throwing with it and then, of course, firing it to see if it'll survive. 
without blowing up or crumbling. Um, so I've tested out a bunch of different colors of clay and different sources with pretty limited success. I think I finally have something I can work with now. But in general, the other issue of it is the plasticity or you know how much you can bend the clay, how much you can bend it to your will, how much you can manipulate it, which any clay, you don't wanna manipulate it too much or it will just um, inherently become fragile or unstable. But if you're making say a handle for a mug, that sort of thing, if you have a really gritty clay or a, a clay that is not very plastic, you're gonna have a hard time using it. All of that to say, I have tremendous respect for these early Moravian potters because they could do things like finding really good clay and of course producing really remarkable pieces with it. And sometimes they, they didn't think it necessary to write down. It was almost, you know, it was, it was a non-topic because it was, they were just so skilled to begin with. Um, it's pretty impressive. Now, some of the other materials, I mentioned slip, which slip is basically a liquid clay, I guess, sort of a milk consistency, like it's still pretty thick. But to that slip, they would add different uh, minerals to give it different colors. And the minerals they used included copper and manganese and other things. Now, for some of the slipware plates that the Moravians became famous for, they have a lot of floral designs. They used a lot of slip for those. They used a white slip called kaolin, which is a different type of clay that they dug at the Fabra. We don't know exactly where they were digging it, and we don't know if any of it survives. Um, but it's a white clay that they could use for some of the more refined pieces of pottery, as well as a slip for sort of a white base layer or a white line that they could draw on. Now for the glaze, this is something everybody loves, but the glazes were lead-based. And really at the time, the Moravians and a lot of other potters for sure, they had three primary ingredients of the glaze, right? And that's flint, sometimes quartz, silica, and lead. Now the Moravians got to Bethabra, they needed to find a good source for all of those things. So we know that they actually got, at least I think by the 1760s, they were trading lead with Fort Dobbs. They would load up wagons of finished pottery, take it out to the western part of the colony to Fort Dobbs and trade it for lead. And we know too from the archeological record at Fort Dobbs that they did use Moravian pottery there and some of it survived there. Of course, lead is toxic as we know it. And we actually have indication that the Moravian potters and other potters knew that at the time, um, but they weren't too concerned about it. Do you have a favorite Moravian potter? That is a difficult question right there. There are a bunch of other Moravian potters too that I haven't even mentioned, like John Holland, um, who worked at Salem. Uh, I've really hit on the main ones that worked at Bethabra. I really do love Oust because, you know, he was, he was the first in the tradition in a sense. Of course, he was carrying on an older tradition from Moravia and from Germany. But just the variety of forms he was able to produce. He was humble in some ways. I think Chris thought that Oust was full of himself, sort of, because he was the old master and everything had to be by his way. And Chris, you know, wanted to dabble in some of the different styles. But I really do have a lot of respect for Oust because he was so skilled, but he could also just make a lot of consistent and high volume of stuff that was just sort of a beautiful simplicity to it sometimes. So can you talk a little bit about how 
similar techniques today are to techniques that they used like in the 1700s in pottery making? Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, the tools have changed. But the first thing that comes to mind for me is that we have to remember the Moravians at the time were especially Alst and Alst's time. He was just cranking out really as many pots as he could. Of course, he's making really good pots. But essentially, he, he wanted to spend the least amount of time on each piece that he could. That way he could have higher volume, fill up the kiln, get it ready to go. So I know a lot of potters today and a lot of potters that are way more skilled than I am. So I'm not at all saying this is a matter of skill. Um, but a lot of potters today do a lot of trimming. So Moravians at the time, they would have used ribs or chips and some other tools in throwing to make, for instance, a mug really thin so that it's not too heavy when you pick it up. But they would not trim that piece later. Of course, they cut it off the wheel. They let it get bone dry. They do a bisque firing, then glaze it, fire it again, then it's done. Um, a lot of potters today, of course, again, the tools have changed. We have electric kilns and that sort of thing. Um, a lot of potters today will throw a mug, for instance, and then let it dry out to what's called leather hard, uh, leather hard state. They'll then flip it upside down and trim off some of the excess from the bottom. Now, that's a great way for a lot of potters today to sort of get a lot of consistency in their pieces, make their pieces more lightweight, that sort of thing but that is not the sort of task that the Moravians would have seen a lot of value in doing at the time. So that is one of the, I think, major changes. But yeah, the tools obviously are different. And a lot of potters today, they do slip work. And of course, brush work is probably more common of painting pieces, painting them with glaze, that is. The slip cups that they used back in the day were ceramic to hold the slip and then generally a feather nozzle, sometimes a bone, a carved bone nozzle, but generally like a turkey or goose quill nozzle to it. And today, even potters that are replicating some of these 18th century Moravian pieces, they use, of course, like rubber bottles and that sort of thing. So can you talk a little bit more about the importance of pottery at Pythabra? So I might be a little biased here, Again, because I, I have a lot of respect for the Moravian potters and I've spent the better part of two years now trying and failing to replicate some of the stuff they made. But I think really when we look at how rich of a pottery tradition we have in North Carolina today, of course Seagrove is one of the most famous spots, but we really have one of the most thriving pottery traditions in the U.S. And I think at least in terms of tradition, in terms of inspiration, a lot of that can be traced to the Moravians and of course the first Moravians at Pythabra down here. And also if we look at some of those apprentices that I mentioned in passing, they are also important because a lot of them, they train under Oust and Christ at Pythabra and Salem, and they go on to make their own shops in time. There's one interesting case. Of course, we talked about Christ and some of the other apprentices maybe doing pranks and misbehaving during their time in the pottery shop. There's a guy named Jacob Meyer, who was born in Bethabra, I think in 1771, and he trained under Oust at Salem in the pottery shop. Um, eventually, his brother-in-law was actually Gottlob Krauss, who was a potter at Bethabra here in the 1780s. Meyer, I believe, was kicked out of the Moravian church for his bad behavior, which is, they're kind of vague about it in the records, but we can sort of speculate what that might have been. Eventually, and this is a pretty exciting recent somewhat recent archaeological discovery. 
he went on to build his own pottery shop in Randolph County, which is called the Mount Shepherd site. And from the excavations there, we know that he copied a lot of the same styles and forms that he had learned from, from Alston and other potters um, in the Moravian towns here. Um, he was not the only one to spread out. There were a bunch of other apprentices that, again, trainer Alston Christ, went to all parts of what was Rowan County at the time, down to Salisbury. Um, in a new book that just came out by Stephen Compton about North Carolina's Moravian potters, he points out that there's evidence of, I believe, two potters that were from Bethabra here. They went to Nashville, Tennessee and started their own shops there. We don't have a lot of evidence about what that business was like or the kind of stuff they were making. Uh, we know a general site of where it was, but there's been no archaeological study there, so we don't know exactly what they're making or if any surviving pieces of their work are around. But at the very least, it shows you that the Moravians here were training a lot of people and influencing a lot of people in terms of the market for pottery that definitely carried through the generations of North Carolina potters. And I think a lot of potters today, they continue to be inspired by the Moravians. Um, a lot of potters that are more skilled than I at replicating some of the Moravian pieces are obviously very deliberately inspired. And then plenty of other potters too, I think are at, at the very least subconsciously inspired by a lot of these famous Moravian pieces. So you've mentioned the archeology span at Bethabra a few times. Can you go a little bit more in depth about the archeology span at Bethabra and its connections and what we've learned about Moravian pottery through the archeology? span of course, the Moravian records are very extensive and very detailed about many things, but they don't tell us everything. That's one of the reasons that Bivens and some other scholars maybe misattributed some things to the Moravians, and there are a bunch of other problems with that. But it wasn't until really the mid-20th century that, generally speaking, that we had more archaeological evidence about Moravian pottery. Now, some of the slipware plates and other more stylized pieces those actually became heirloom pieces in a lot of families. So they were handed down, remained intact, and eventually found their way into different museum collections. So we knew that we could trace those back to the Moravian potters. There were lots of other things we didn't know about different styles of pieces and of course different locations of pottery shops. And those came to light really when archeologists began to excavate the Thabra and other sites. When was the excavation at Bethabra? It was like 1950s? Started in 1963. And one of the, my favorite works of archeology, span again, a little biased here maybe, but um, Stan South's Historical Archeology span in Wachovia. And this was the first major study about archeology span at Bethabra. Bethabra Gemeinhaus that dates to 1788, it was used as an active Moravian church, at least until 19, 1953 which of course was the bicentennial of their history at the site. Um, and after that, Bethabra sort of very slowly transitions into being what we know, now know it as a city park and historic site. In between those years, Stan South and other archeologists, they began the process of excavating Bethabra. And as y'all know, when Bethabra sort of, not really shut down, but you know, it, it shifted from being the main spot for Moravians when Salem became more established as the main city in the 1770s. They tore down a lot of the buildings, filled in the foundations because they wanted to maximize sort of the field space out there. So a lot of the buildings that we see, at least the outlines of today, 
people, you know, in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, didn't know that those were there. So Stan South and others did a lot to uncover not only those foundations, but actually dig deeper into the cellars. Now, lucky for us, the potters left behind what are called waster dumps. It's what it sounds like. It's basically where they throw all their waste, which could include food waste and other things, but of course it more refers to the pottery waste. And these are the reject pieces. So it's kind of funny that we spend so much time admiring and looking at these broken pieces that were mostly reject pieces. But again, I can tell you from experience, sometimes these were perfect pieces that you're really proud of, and then you do something stupid like trip and drop them, or you pick up a piece of greenware by handle and the handle snaps off before you've had a chance to fire it. That sort of stupid thing that I do all the time. Um, and it certainly happened plenty with the Moravian potters. And I think most of the time they were firing defects. So either the fire got too high of a temperature, sometimes too low of a temperature, and the pottery was rejected because again, we know they're not, they're not putting their signature on these pieces. So really they're, the quality of the pieces is their signature. So they don't want any inferior quality pottery out there attached to them. So they threw away all kinds of stuff. And sometimes they were more or less full pieces, sometimes very tiny pieces. But we can look at these waster dumps and that's what Stan South and the others did. Excavated them, put together some of these pieces that told us a lot about the clay, the glazes, the materials, some of the pieces that we maybe suspected they were making but didn't have any evidence of. And we really got a fuller appreciation of the, the full variety of things they were making and also the extent of things they were making. And that was, I think, over a decade of work really. And it's still ongoing uh, at some sites. For instance, I actually volunteered for a kiln site in Salem that was related to John Holland, I believe. So they're doing all kinds of um, ongoing excavations that, again, we are sometimes really just scratching the surface about the true skill and um, imaginative genius, I guess, of the Moravian potters. And if y'all want to learn a little bit more about some Moravian pottery, at least see the actual site of Bethabra and some of the things we've discussed, um, you can check out two of the virtual field trips that I did for the site. One is basically about Oust in the early years, and the second one is about Chris and Oliver and some of the other developments um, into the 1780s at Bethabra. This has been an episode of Moravian Mornings, a historic Bethabra Park podcast. If you have any questions, or would like our hosts to discuss certain topics, please email us at moravianmornings at gmail.com, or message us on our Instagram page, also titled Moravian Mornings. Thanks for listening. Auf Wiedersehen.